Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Auto Sport Podcast. We analyse Formula One's proposals for 2021 and ask whether it can really deliver. Friday of the Bahrain Grand Prix weekend 2018 could be a very, very important one for the long-term future of Formula One. F1's tabled its proposals for 2021. There was a grandiose press release issued on the Friday morning before practice. There was a lengthy meeting with all the team bosses designed to set the direction for F1's long term. Now, Chase Carey, chairman and CEO of Formula One, said, Formula One is a sport with a rich history. We want to preserve, protect and enhance that history by unleashing F1's potential, by putting our fans at the heart of a more competitive and more exciting sport. We are driven by one desire, to create the world's leading sporting brand. Fan-centred, commercially successful, profitable for our teams and with technological innovation at its heart. So that's the mission statement, which says very, very little, but sounds very nice. Uh, my first guest, Scott Mitchell. What did you make of this this general package of proposals and the reaction to it? Says very little, and but sounds very nice. Is actually quite a good summary for the for the proposals as a whole. I think it, it, it's nice. It, it's it's vague, and the reaction from the teams made it very clear that what is being presented publicly is vague. They've got a little bit more detail behind the scenes than, than we do, but in general, everything should work in theory. Then they're, they're nice ideas in theory. They should 
target all of the areas that Formula One is struggling in, in imbalanced in, not got its priorities right in, but whether it'll actually work in, in practice, that's what the big challenge for, for F1, FIA, everybody over the next few months to actually work out how you narrow all this down and make it work. And my second guest, Adam Cooper. Now, from my perspective, this feels a bit, heard it all before, in terms of uh, the vague objectives being all well and good, but not much detail. You've been around even longer than me, a veteran of the Formula One paddock. What do you make of the whole thing? Yeah, I agree with Scott. The The aims are all uh, logical and sensible, and I think nearly everything there we'd all like to see happen. The big question is, how do we get to those goals? Um, we've heard different perspectives on how much detail the teams were actually told um some people like zach brown have said oh we, we all agreed we wouldn't give any detail other people have said well actually there wasn't very much so there's a bit of confusion on that front um but the main thing is it, it, it is all sensible there's nothing there at all that fans could really object to and it's now a question of um what happens with the teams and obviously particularly ferrari and mercedes who, who clearly have the, the most to lose especially on revenue and cost caps and so on well that's the question isn't it the devil is in the detail and there's going to be all sorts of politics and there's long-term commercial deals at play and then you get all the off-track politicking and hints of breakaways and all that kind of thing so there's going to be a long way to go before this is all delivered and getting unity of uh, of specific objectives is going to be difficult so let's let's just have a look through the through the detail adam they've they've got a list of key strategic initiatives let's let's just go through case by case power units are the first one what do you make of that yeah we got um Details on the power unit back in October, I think it was October the 31st. Um, that was a joint um, presentation from the FIA and F1. And obviously that was the thing that led to Mercedes and Ferrari kicking off and complaining about the DNA of Formula One and then ultimately the breakaway threats and so on. What we've been given on this release is just very, very vague details. The one in October was actually had a lot more in it. Um, lot more detail about things like um, the MGUH going and there being a sort of driver element kind of a sort of overtaking button um, so they haven't actually added anything to to that and I actually asked Ross yesterday um, I said to him well, the key thing obviously is the engine plan the same as October and he said I won't tell you um, what seems to be happening is there are two different views one from F1 and one from the FIA and I think um, the simple version is the FIA still want to have a little bit more technology and I think the driving force behind that is Gilles Simon who was the FIA engine expert when these rules were formulated he then went off and went freelance and worked for Pure if you remember the project that didn't happen and then I think he consulted for Honda he's now back at the FIA and the point is that these rules are his baby so he's basically trying to um, can carry on with as much of it as possible that seems to be a bit of a sticking point. And um, Christian Horner and Toto Wolf both mentioned to me this week that that was an issue, and, and Toto's gone on record now saying that the FA and the F Formula 1 have to agree. So that is one of the key points, because obviously the most important thing are the engine rules. that They have to be set in stone as soon as possible so everyone can get on and start getting ready for 2021. That's a concern, isn't it, Scott? You know, we talk about unity objective, we've got teams with different objectives, We've got, as Adam said, F1 itself and FI potentially at odds about the direction of the engine. And I don't see anything here that takes us on from what we had several months ago. And we may even have moved further away from a, from a consensus. I think it's classic Formula One of just going around in circles because you don't have that 
one clear point of leadership making a decision. And I'm pretty sure, I think it was, did John Todd say something a, a couple of years ago or something about like needs a dictatorship, basically? And he doesn't mean it in a horrific, tyrannical way, but it, it needs that point where where this all stops. It's really muddled at the moment. I mean, I'm I'm new to being inside the F1 paddock and it baffles me. It genuinely baffles me to 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 see just how many different people have input, how many different layers you've got before you can even come close to a decision. And this is all shrouded in the same sort of mystery and, and uncertainty. And I, do, I just, I, I can't see how you can make a compromise that works on, on the engines if, as Adam says, you've got people with fundamentally different agendas locking horns right at the very top it's all well and good if that's in the early stages and you can oh you know let them argue for a few weeks and then you'll eventually like someone someone bigger and stronger and more important will come along and hit them over the head and they'll get on with it but these are the people that need to be hitting people over the head so i really i don't i don't see where where they make progress unless um unless someone gives in and you guys have been around formula one longer than i have but i don't imagine there's too many people that are going to be willing to give up a bit of face just to you know, just to to see it progress a bit simpler. Well, I think the verdicts on the power units is all well and good, but but let's actually see some see some detail and some indications of consensus. The next item listed is costs. We believe how you spend the money must be more decisive and important than how much money you spend. While there will be some standardised elements, car differentiation must remain a core value, and implement a cost cap that maintains Formula One's position as the pinnacle of motorsport with state of the art technology. Now, the upshot of that cost cap isn't it we're talking about budget caps spending caps which have been on the table for a long time adam so what's the what's the substance behind this are we actually any closer to to achieving all these laudable objectives well things like cost caps have been talked about for years and years and years and the argument always was that it's very hard to police and you get situations like um people when toyota and honda were racing other teams would say well we don't know what's going on back in japan what sort of r&d they're doing there we'll never be able to know how much money they're spending and it's not fair and so on and so on. But clearly, Ross believes he can get on top of it. And this is a guy who's obviously worked for Ferrari and then brought Honda, Braun, Mercedes. He knows how the money is spent, where it comes from, where it goes. And the key thing is that one of his advisors is the former financial guy from Brackley, who he's brought along to um, basically uh, investigate this, the cost cap per uh, situation and clearly they are confident that he can get on top of things and will they'll be able to police it and see where see where the money's coming from see where the money's going and make sure that teams aren't aren't cheating and so scott that's the point on this isn't it it's how exactly do you do that even though some of those manufacturers have gone you've still got ferrari which has got its automotive side all on the same site you've got the mercedes size which has a chassis base that's that's separate but also has some road car project going on there and then you've got bricksworth the engine side which also has various other powertrain projects it's really really difficult to to unravel things it's quite easy when you look at a single team but auditing teams for actually a flat budget cap like say you will spend x is incredibly difficult and and i just think given it's been tried before it's just it's just not going to happen and that's even before you add the fact that the big teams will be lobbying against it and let's not forget, if you have a budget cap, it's going to be down to people like Toto Wolf, Christian Horner, to sack a whole load of people, which is not a particularly pleasant thing. Yeah, I hope uh, I hope Ross Braun's not squeamish because he's opened up a massive can can of horrible worms, hasn't he? And I I, I think he's, he's 
they're going to struggle to to make something happen. I, it kind of makes me think of um, it didn't didn't work as a cost cap, but it, it makes me think of my previous position working as our Formula E reporter. Hey, Scott Mitchell, bingo. Formula E has been yeah, mentioned. Exactly. Uh, Rally Cross, Lydon Hill, Charlton Athletic. There you go. Um, Clyde Mendonca. <laughs> Very few people um, get that reference. <laughs> so in, in, in Formula E, they, they had this opportunity, obviously, to build from the very beginning a championship with very clear walls between what, where you could spend money on, what you could build, what you could develop, that sort of thing. And it was, that, it was all very simple. Um, and obviously, Formula E had the massive benefit there of not being tied down by years and years and years of infrastructure building up and all this complicated situation. And that's one of the problems that Formula One's got. I, I, more intelligent and experienced people than me have to work out how to untangle Formula One from the mess and the web that is built over the last what sixty-eight years. So it is, it's tricky. Um, cost caps are like like we said right at the beginning. It's a very laudable theoretical idea. How you actually put it in practice, where you draw the line between um, R and D, physical manufacturing, marketing, uh, driver salaries. That was another thing that, that Toto mentioned yesterday. Like it, it's it's a mess. And whether you put it at 150 million, 200 million, 250 million, you're going to get to the point where you basically have a cost cap. I imagine that marginally affects the big teams because they have to find roundabout ways to spend their money and doesn't make a difference with the small teams because they're never going to get to that ceiling anyway so i i just i nice idea um but i think there are better ways to for f1 to fix its financial imbalance than than a cost cap which is a nice idea in principle horrible in practice well i think there's going to be more chance to gain in terms of specifying certain parts you know, you can you can target non-performance differentiating parts that can be shared or spec designs. Although that said, non-performance differentiating parts is a difficult thing to define because you can say, well, that doesn't affect the performance of the car. But if you can package something a little bit more cleverly, a bit more sensibly, a bit more small or different shape, or whatever, that can have a, a knock-on performance impact. And I, and I think this sort of idea about how you spend the money must be more decisive and important. Well, you can probably move the dial a little bit. But the simple fact is, whatever the rules, and you see this even in completely spec formulas, you see it in Formula 2, the team with the most resources has the best ultimate performance potential. That, that's a simple fact, isn't it? Yeah, but also the team with the most resources tends to hire the, the best people, um, and that makes a difference. And this bit about um, spending the money must be more decisive and important than how much you spend. I think that's quite interesting, because that also does play into the hands of people like Force India who, um, who've who always done a, a lot with a little or someone like James Key who, who was at Force India, Sauber now he's at Toro Rosso, he's used to working with midfield teams. These guys know how to develop cars without wasting money on blind alley R&D projects that, that, that don't actually bring any performance and that's what it's all about um, the bigger teams have the money to, to do things um, that might not end up on the car and it's just a complete waste of resources but you can see why the likes of Arifa Bernay, Toto and Christian Horner are frustrated because they all know when they get back to their factories on Monday morning there are going to be people knocking on the door saying uh, what does this mean am I going to have a job in a couple of years you know I've got a mortgage and kids in school and all the rest of it and there will have to be some downsizing and, and, and quite a serious amount um, but as we all know do you do these teams really need 200 aerodynamicists when maybe they can 
get away with 120 or something. So it, perhaps it is a, a wake-up call and, and it, it, they should take it and run with it. I think that kind of links in with the point about more um, standardised elements. So as Adam says, do you really need that many people to build a Formula 1 car, design the parts you need on a Formula 1 car? There are, there are fundamentally, there are going to be parts on that car that are fractionally different up and down the grid and they don't need to be. Um, I was talking in Australia to Jörg Zander, the Sauber technical director, and he said, just for example, the like the the steering rack is something that it doesn't. You, the, everyone is so smart, the engineers are so smart. When you've got such small wiggle room in the regulations, you eventually come across come up with the same solution. Um, I've heard a story of uh, of one driver experiencing the the sort of shape and design of the the, the throttle pedal in in a new team and being confused like well, why are you making this yourself why don't you just get this as an off-the-shelf part and spend that money on a simulator or something like that so there there are already going to be ways in which formula one teams even the small teams which are super efficient are wasting money unnecessarily um and yeah that that even even if you focus on that and said there wasn't a cost cap that will obviously have a knock-on effect. There will probably be a human impact of that as well because as soon as you introduce standardisation, unless you can find another home for the people that were designing these um, small aerodynamic surfaces and covers and, and, and whatnot, they're, they're probably not going to have a job. But unfortunately, Formula 1 has ballooned to the point where it's, 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 a sw- it's swollen at the moment and it, it needs to shrink. And there are going to be consequences to that everybody just needs to be careful and make sh- and, and f- try and find a solution that limits the human impact as much as possible that's going to be tricky hopefully it's achievable because you don't want to see anyone forced out of work i think one side of the cost thing is much more easy to deliver in that just the overall cutting of costs there are many many ways to do that i think that's actually one of the most straightforward things to do on this list there are ways to do it with standardized parts all these things we've mentioned however the assumption that you can reduce the gaps between teams necessarily is, is a dangerous one you know in Friday practice in Bahrain there was three seconds between first and last now I go back to 92 just to throw it around Nigel Mansell was on pole by 1.9 seconds at Silverstone you know the field's not as spread out now it's not like it was always covered by a second and then it's it's gone increasingly mad so we have to be really careful about these assumptions there will always be a degree of haves and have-nots and while you might be able to close up the gap you might be able to restrict what the big teams are doing so it's more possible for them to miss something and someone in the midfield to do something clever that's certainly possible I think that half of the cost thing is is, an, is a really easy thing to say but incredibly difficult to achieve not to skip ahead on a point as we discussed what was announced yesterday but I think that ties in quite nicely with their aims on the sporting side because as you say grid's closer than it's ever been but Everyone is co- massively critical of the racing. Obviously, we've seen knee-jerk reactions already to Australia, which is never a very good place for a race anyway, unless it rains. Um, but it, the problem is, if you had that three-second spread from 1st to 20th, but you had cars that could race each other better, that didn't have this force field, I think it was referred to, of where you, where you can't follow the other car. Um, that, that That's amazing. Like that, We would be in, undisputably, the best era of Formula 1. You've got 20 cars separated by three seconds that can actually race because you don't, you, you know, you could get away with DRS trains and stuff like that. People following a second and a half behind the other and then ruining their tyres. Like Formula One, Formula One can be amazing. Uh, it the problem is at the moment you've got the point where the, the the cars are extremely difficult to race, and that is something that 
they want to address for the for the next batch of regulations, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. Um, well, actually, just jumping ahead to the sporting and technical rules and regulations, the points on the press release are we must make the cars more raceable to increase overtaking opportunities, which you just referred to, Scott. Certainly possible, been tried before, didn't work. Engineering technology must remain a cornerstone, but driver skill must be the predominant factor in the performance of the car. And the final point, the cars must and will remain different from each other and maintain performance differentiators like aerodynamics, suspensions and PU performance. However, we believe areas not relevant to fans need to be standardised. So Adam, how do you unpack that and come up with some kind of shape of F1 2021? Just more good intentions with no detail. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the overtaking opportunity is quite a, a key thing. Um, we're speaking on Saturday morning and at this very moment there's a meeting at the track with the, the technical directors and the FIA um, on this occasion, they're talking more specifically about tweaks for 2019 rather than the, the bigger picture. But obviously, efforts are underway. And the key thing is that Ross has hired this team of um, technical guys led by Pat Simmons. I was talking to Pat yesterday. There's seven of them working in the F1 office. Um, and one of their main focuses for 2021 is obviously aero and overtaking. But as he said, it's the usual problem. There's seven of them and there are thousands of team aerodynamicists. So they could come up with something that's intended to allow cars to follow and all the rest of it. And then by the time it makes its way onto cars in 2021, all the teams will have found ways to screw it up. So that's the, the issue they face. But at least um, efforts are underway. Um, and the point about, um, we were talking just now about the um, standardised parts. I mean, it makes total sense to, to have things that make no difference to fans or performance um, have the same stuff on all the cars. I mean, it's such a waste of money. Does uh, engineering technology remain in the cornerstone? Th- does does high tech have to mean fancy wings and crucial um, aerodynamic performance in, in, in that way? Like, do, why does that have to be what in high tech engineering technology is? Yeah, I think everybody. If you if you stand in the pit lane and look at a front wing and barge boards and so on, it's all very impressive. But it's also just ridiculous the amount of detail. And also, we've seen so many times people knock bits off and it doesn't seem to slow them down. But that's that's where all the money goes, all the wind tunnel hours and so on, and aerodynamic salaries. It's all going into that stuff. And if there were a few more restrictions on on what areas teams can work on, it would just automatically save money and again it, it wouldn't make any difference to the fans would it you make a car high performance and with a lot of grip without having all those multi-wing elements and silly little shapes and different appendages on barge boards and inside cars can't you Ed? yeah you can do but again we have to be careful with this because you could let's say have a simpler front wing but if you have like a, a two-piece front wing or whatever if you're in turbulent air and you get a stall you know, you will get a stall over a bigger percentage of the downforce, etc. You know, cars lose twenty to thirty percent in a quicker corner behind another car. So, the the big problem here is finding exactly where you need to look to to achieve these objectives. Yep, simpler wings would be cheaper and require less excessive research and development, and simplifying all the cascades and all these multi elements and slot gaps and the flow controllers and vortex generators and everything makes makes a fair bit of sense. But simplifying them alone doesn't go hand in hand with automatically making it easier to negate the force field i think that's one of the things that they have to do some very very serious research into they tried to do this in the 2009 rules with the work the overtaking working group did which slashed off a load of downforce but teams obviously found a way to gain that downforce back and then we had this more recent rule change where they decided cars need to be four to five seconds a lap quicker and they put a load more aero back on so what i want to see is just really really 
clear thinking because you can throw these objectives around and no one can really object to any of them but they really need to come up with a clear objective that's that's very much research-based and, and as Adam alluded to they've got seven people trying to do it and they're up against basically the whole world <laughs> trying to trying to undo what they're doing so it's it's really 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 difficult so when I say we need to see the detail in that I'm saying that with the knowledge that it's incredibly incredibly difficult for them to do that yeah there's only seven people but they are pretty clever people and we shouldn't forget the FIA which um, now has Nicholas Tombasis who's an ex-Ferrari one of the top designers um, on the FIA side and they're, they're working closely together and I think it's a much more powerful group than we ever had before when the FIA would have the old advisor or there'd be something like an overtaking working group which was basically half a dozen technical directors all with their usual vested interests so uh, that didn't really lead anywhere I think that's one of the key things. I was talking to a technical director the other day about this overtaking meeting I just mentioned. And he said one of the problems is they all sit there and it's all, as I mentioned, always about vested interests and they're always trying to defend their own corner and they don't see the big picture and they vote against things. And the problem is if they carry on doing that, eventually they'll vote themselves out of a job. And when the, the governance changes, which is another point we'll come on to, things like the technical working group will be um, could potentially be squeezed out so we won't have situations where the technical technical directors are voting on the rules um, and with a chance to block things they'll just have to take what they're given so they've got to be careful they've got to realize there's a bigger picture and it it is about the show it's about entertainment it's about the fans do we need to consider as well that whatever changes are made to the cars also need to be married to circuits that are better for overtaking because one of the big problems we've got with this generation of car, where the performance is so impressive, but braking zones are much shorter, and so the corners themselves become faster. And that is a horrific recipe for good racing, because the smaller the stops, the fewer overtaking opportunities you have. So, I don't know, you, again, throwing back to you two, because you've got more experience than me of, of Formula One, but the way circuits have evolved, even over the last 20 years, are they... Are they suitable for good Formula One racing? And is there any scope to, to, to alter them? Well, there's, there's no mention or suggestion of that. I think there is huge scope for, for looking at the circuits and trying to come up with a with a way to create better racing in, in that regard. In some ways, the cars have kind of outgrown the circuits because effectively, the quicker the cars get, the shorter straights yeah, get well, in real well, terms. That's, so that's, that's my point. Like, Yes, it's not mentioned in this. We mentioned that this is a a, a vague outline of what they want to do, but... It, it's all linked and with all the best will in the world you could design the car that you think is perfect for racing but if you put it on a track that's not going to work then then it's all futile isn't it so you can't there there are other variables at, at play so this is my my question is does that need to be considered among all of this like everything that you can change on a formula one car and with how a formula one team operates and how it spends its money but do you also need to consider the other variables as well? Is this an opportunity to look at it as a whole rather than just what happens in the paddock? It is and it isn't, I think, because F1 can influence the things it can control. But when it comes to circuits, you're asking the, the tracks basically to invest to make big changes if you're talking about existing circuits. You know, setting different parameters for new build circuits is something that could be done. And that should certainly be looked at. And I think, yeah, you're right. The circuits are a big part of the equation. And I don't really see much evidence that there's a huge push to, to make changes there. There are some people talking about this topic, though. There has been a bit of an effort the last couple of years, hasn't there? Um, 
we've seen several uh, instances of, of wide entries on the way into hairpins. I think um, Turn 1 at Austin is one example. That was something that I think may have come out of the GPDA. Um, I think Alex Verts, possibly you know, Pedro de la Rosa, it's something that they talked about and it was, it's been um, included in a couple of the lat- later Tilka circuits. But I think it'd be a bit tough on the tracks. We know there most of them are struggling to pay for the races anyway and clearly Liberty want to keep ramping up their prices in years to come so to ask them to start rebuilding corners <laughs> it's not very good timing is it but obviously new, new tracks it's a different story but at the moment there aren't any on the horizon so but, but it is all a valid point because you need to look at the whole global picture there's many 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 factors that influence all this and, and tracks is, is just one of them um, and all the, all the stuff on this list is contributes to it and there's many other factors that aren't, aren't being touched upon no other points revenue the new revenue distribution criteria must be more balanced based on meritocracy of the current performance and reward success for teams and the commercial rights holder f1's unique historical franchise and value must still be recognized and revenue support to both cars and engine suppliers now i think we can all agree that working out how the commercial uh, money is is shared among the teams and trying to make it a bit more even a meritocratic rather than guaranteeing certain teams big payments is a nice idea, although I doubt that's going to be achieved entirely because outfits like Ferrari and Mercedes have a huge influence. So what's going to happen there, Adam? Well, that's obviously going to be the big battleground in the months to come. Uh, the figure that's floating around for Ferrari's uh, extra payment is uh, $40 million, which is substantially less than what they have been getting. Um, but it's clearly a lot better than nothing. They're still in a much stronger position than everybody else. Um, but I think anybody looking at the way the money's been distributed over the last few years, if you if you look at the top 10 teams in any given season and the amount of money they actually walk away with, it is absolutely insane. And it's so different from other sports. I think if you look at things like the Premier League, um, the gap between finishing first and 20th is relatively small um, compared with Formula One. It's, it's so unbalanced. Um, but the big problem is... Mercedes and Ferrari rely on that extra cash. It's how Toto sold the Formula One deal to Mercedes that they get so much money from FOA and they get a bit from Petronas, a bit from here and there, and you don't have to put much in. Um, and now that equation's going to change a little. It's going to be much harder for him to, to get his budget signed off every year. Speaking of Mercedes, they're one of, obviously, the engine supplies in, in the championship and very very vague even by even by this release's standards uh very vague uh reference to revenue support for engine supplies as well when i read that my mind immediately thought oh yeah they they don't they they don't get anything from a championship perspective because we were talking in the media center hypothesizing what it could be and you mentioned ed maybe they'll have a like an an engine manufacturer's title as well so that there's a prize breakdown there. And I'm not saying that that's what it'll be. That's that's just us guessing. But I'm curious, with how much it costs to research and develop and then build the F1 engines, how do you think the the engine manufacturers actually are financially? Do you reckon that they make their money back with customer deals or do you reckon they're operating at an Im- immense loss? No, the, the customer deals are just a, a drop in the ocean. Um, the main... Th- there's two different approaches. Some manufacturers, the way it's been explained to me over the years, some manufacturers, the Formula One budget comes from R&D and some it comes from marketing. That's the basic um, division. And if you look at R&D budgets for these these 
big manufacturers, they're in the billions and Formula One really isn't that big a deal. Um, so a customer engine deal for 20 million or whatever, it's it's nothing, it, it's, it's, it's peanuts really. So it, it doesn't make any difference. It, it, it really is a drop in the ocean. But the interesting thing is that it talks about engine suppliers and obviously Renault, Ferrari and Mercedes all have their own teams. The interesting one of the current guys is Honda. Uh, where do they fit into that? Does this mean that, that Honda will get some kind of income at the end of a season? Um, and also, is this partly there to tempt people like Aston Martin and Porsche and the other guys who are sort of taking a look? Do they now know they're going to get something back? But on the other hand, it, it will be tiny, won't it? Imagine what how much Porsche will, VW Audi will spend on a Formula One budget. If they get 30, 40 million back, end of the year it's nothing is it really so it's not it's not going to be that decisive certainly not without a transformation in the engine regs to make it make it much much cheaper and i guess cutting out the mguh which uh, which was on the list of proposals previously is one way to do that but you, you can spend a hell of a lot of money developing even a simpler uh, a simpler power unit package uh, the final point governance a simple and streamlined structure between the teams the fi and formula one apparently doesn't sound especially interesting. Hard, well, to, hard we'll, to argue we'll, with that. We'll see. <laughs> well, I think that, but basically, what that's about is the strategy group. We've had this thing that Bernie set up that included basically the five uh, chosen teams plus the the next best, which at the moment is uh, Force India. So you had the six teams, Bernie and the FA, sitting in meetings, basically deciding on the future direction, and the four teams at the back um, not having any say. One of the first first things Liberty did was allow those guys to attend those meetings as observers and I guess they're allowed to speak but they can't actually vote and I think that was one of the things that Liberty's found um, a bit frustrating um, they said when they announced their financial results the other day that yeah the governance was uh, much more convoluted than they expected we have this situation where proposals come from the sporting working group or the technical working group which are the team managers and the technical directors things then go to the strategy group where the, the six teams, the FAA and um, F1, vote on them. And then they go to the F1 commission, and it's only there where the likes of Sauber, Toro Rosso and Haas actually get to vote on them. Um, and all of that takes time, and things get blocked and so on. And I think the whole point is to streamline that. And I guess potentially the strategy group will go, and there'll be a, a body, whether it's just the Formula 1 commission, but there'll be a body where everybody has a vote. But I'm, also, I'm sure it will also be weighted so that, as now, F1 and the FIA can, can outvote the teams. Because that's how Bernie set it up last time. Six votes for him, six votes for the FIA and, and the six teams. So he always knew that he could get the FIA, FIA on his side. Or if it suited him, he'd get the six teams on his side. And one way or another, he'd get what he wanted. So what's the overall verdict on this? Let's, let's have uh, everyone's thoughts. Scott, impressed? At least they're saying the right things. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt and and hope that that it is actually going to be different for the first time in however many decades. Adam, is F1 2021 going to be the revolution everybody wants it to be? Well, this all looks good. And if it all comes off, um, it's got to be positive for the fans. Um, For us as media, we'll hopefully have a good championship to cover. I think one of the most interesting reactions yesterday was from Claire Williams saying that she got back from the meeting and said she wanted to crack open a bottle of champagne and that, that was obviously partly because there's clearly a big financial bonus for the, the midfield teams with potentially the cost cap and then extra income but I think she was talking about the whole package as well it all seems to sort of make sense and so on um, but now we've got to see if they can actually um, put it all off 
Well, my position is I'm not going to give anyone the benefit of the doubt on this. There's some sensible objectives. A lot of them we've heard before. These things are achievable and possible, but it's going to take a lot of hard work. There's some very good people involved, but good intentions don't necessarily translate into reality, do they? Yeah, and also it's worth pointing out that this press release that we're studying in detail, the, the team bosses walked out of the meeting carrying it in their hands, so it was written in advance. So basically what we're seeing is a sort of an, an agenda. It's not sort of conclusions that came out of the meeting after they all discussed it. So there's still a lot that we haven't heard. Um, yesterday's meeting was, was the way most people have described it, as we expect in advance. It was a presentation. I presume there was a little bit of banter and a few questions, but the real debate uh, comes now. And um, I think initially all the teams are going to have individual meetings with Chase and Ross, and then presumably there'll be more collective meetings but clearly there's there's a lot more to come and uh, as we said at the beginning the, the devil's in the detail isn't it well i say good luck to them there's going to be a lot of politics a lot of talking a lot of arguments a lot of leverage exerted in the coming months as these points are discussed and we try and get some detail on it let's hope it works and at least something's being tried so uh, so yeah let's hope formula one gets it right this time and of course you can read all of the coverage and the news and the reaction to this ongoing story there's going to be huge amounts of coverage of that over the over the coming weeks on autosport.com autosport magazine out every thursday we'll have uh, in-depth analysis of this and all the other topics going on in in formula 1 and the big talking points check out sister titles f1 racing and motorsport.com thanks very much for joining us we'll be back soon with another autosport podcast Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. All because of a fancy bike? It's not just a bike. Peloton makes treadmills, too. Eh, all treadmills are the same. Our treadmills can adjust speed and incline automatically, so you never break your stride. Whether you're squeezing in a power walk or training for a marathon, Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try the Peloton Tread risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com home dash trial. Sports Social Podcast Network. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.